Ephesians chapter 3, reading from verse 14. For this reason I kneel before the Father, from whom his whole family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches he may strengthen you with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the saints to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ, and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. The Apostle Paul has been going through some pretty heavy-duty teaching in the first two and a half chapters of Ephesians, but now he turns to prayer. And that, of course, is an appropriate way to do things. We should expose ourselves to God's Word and then respond in prayer that the things that we have been learning might become applicable in our lives. You'll notice that he starts out his prayer by saying in verse 14, for this reason I kneel before the Father. Ephesians chapter 3 verse 1 starts out, for this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles. And then at that point he lost his train of thought and he digressed and he went off in a magnificent 13 verse digression. I was personally very encouraged by this because I figured if the Apostle Paul can lose his train of thought, why can't I? And if he could digress, why can't I? Well, today we pick up after the digression. But if we are to understand correctly what he is saying here, we need to take these words for this reason seriously because this gives us the basis of Paul's prayer. You notice that he uses the expression, for this reason, I, the apostle, begin to pray for you. But the question we must ask is, well, what's his reason? Well, what is it that is stimulating him to pray? Well, to get the answer to that, of course, we need to turn to the earlier chapters of Ephesians. I won't spend much time on it, except to remind you of one or two important things. The early chapters of Ephesians state quite firmly that God is the God of history, that God has a plan for this world, that this world and this universe is not hopelessly out of control, neither is it is something that runs itself. Ephesians teaches us that God is the creator and upholder of all things, and that he is working in the affairs of this cosmos, which he created, until he brings it to the consummation, to the finality that he has determined. Now this, of course, goes very much in the teeth of what many people believe today, but it is a fundamental tenet of the Christian faith, that God is the God of history and that he is working out his purposes. That is quite specifically what Paul teaches in Ephesians. But then he goes a step further than that and points out to us that central to God's eternal cosmic plan is Christ himself. And that the culmination of God's plan for all things is that Christ will be seen on a cosmic scale to be King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Now that again is not what many people in our world today would accept. 
but this is what Christianity teaches, that God is the God of history, working out his plans for the cosmos, and that Christ is the focal point of God's plan for the universe. But then he goes a step further, and he says that it is not only Christ who is the focal point of his plans, but Christ and his church becomes the focal point. In other words, God is in the business of working out his purposes in Christ and through the church in our world today. Now, Paul says, for this reason, I bow my knees to the Father. Now, people have different approaches to spiritual life. But let me look at it this way with you for a minute. If you were to believe that God has a plan for the world and the focal point of this plan for our world is Christ and that he is going to work his plan for Christ out through the church and you were part of that church, would you say to yourself, wow, I'm in up to my eyeballs in this thing. I came into spiritual experience because I had a problem, I wanted help and I came to the church and they helped me with my problem. I didn't know I was caught up in anything like that. Or perhaps you were raised in a Christian environment and you sort of went along with it because your parents wanted you to and then you sort of drifted away when you got to college and then you got married and had kids and you figured, well, we better get the kids in some kind of education. So you sort of came to church while the kids were getting their education and then you suddenly said to yourself, good night, I didn't know I was getting into this. I had no idea that I was being caught up in some grand eternal purposes and plans and that God is going to work them out through Christ and his church and I am becoming part of his church. Wow, I had no idea. You say, you better pray for me. Now that is the kind of thinking that Paul is using in moving into prayer here. For this reason, this is the basis of my praying. Now you'll notice that Paul is praying because of what he has discovered of God's revelation. And that, of course, is the way that we're supposed to pray. Praying is part of a conversation with God. But conversations are two ways. (laughs) If they're not two ways, they're monologues, They're they're not conversations. Prayer is part of a conversation with God, where God talks to you through his word, and you talk to him in response in prayer. Now, some people don't want to be bothered praying on the basis of what God is saying because they're more interested in talking to God and telling him what they want than they're interested in listening to God and hearing what he wants. But the Apostle Paul reminds us that it is on the basis of our discovery of what God has in mind that we turn to him in prayer. Now, notice that he prays with great intensity here. For this reason, I kneel before the Father. Jewish men don't kneel down when they pray. They stand up. You've seen pictures, or perhaps you've been to the Holy Land, and you've seen the the Jewish men praying at the Western Wall, the only remnant that we have of the great temple that was built there. And you'll notice that they stand as they pray, and they rock back and forwards on their feet, and they pray with great intensity. Paul says, I am used to the liturgical prayers of the temple, There's an appropriate place for that kind of praying, for the formal praying, but I'm not into liturgy at the moment, and I'm not into formal praying. I am bowing my knees out of my sheer intensity of desire and concern before the Lord. I am praying on the basis of what he has revealed. I am praying with great intensity. Notice the third thing. He says, for this reason I kneel before the Father. 
from whom his whole family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I often hear people say, I believe in the power of prayer. In fact, there's a big debate going on in the medical community as to the effectiveness or the ineffectiveness of prayer. And this is a very, very helpful discussion and debate that's going on. We understand what people mean when they say, I believe in the power of prayer. But I think to be accurate, what we really ought to say is, I believe in the power of the God to whom I pray, to hear and to answer my prayers. It's not prayer per se that is powerful. There are people who will pray to idols of wood and idols of stone and metal idols. People who will pray to all kinds of objects that can neither hear nor understand nor answer their prayer. The effectiveness of prayer is determined by the ability of the one prayed to to hear and to answer prayer. So, of course, our praying is going to be affected not only by what God has revealed in his word, but by our intimacy of relationship with the one to whom we pray. Now, who is Paul praying to? He is praying to the Father from whom his whole family in heaven and on earth derives its name. The theologians talk about the church as being in two locations. They talk about the church militant down here on earth and the church triumphant in heaven. Paul uses slightly different terminology and talks about the Father having a family in heaven and on earth. There is a vast family of people who have come into a relationship with God through Christ. And some of them are in heaven because they have died and absent from the body, they're present with the Lord. And some of us are still alive down here on earth. But he is the same father. The picture, of course, is of a father who is drawing people to himself and building a vast family out of every kindred and tongue and tribe and nation. And some of them he's taken to be with himself and he's securing them through death and he is taking them into his eternal glorious presence. He is a superlative, magnificent father of the dead and the living. Now that kind of a father is one to whom a child would come in prayer. There's another possibility in the translation of what Paul says here, and that is that he's not just the father of the family, but he is the father from whom all ideas of fatherhood come. And the reason for that is the word that Paul uses here in the Greek is patria, and it can be translated two different ways. If he is talking about him being the father of the whole family, which I believe is the way we should look at it, then it is clear that he's talking about this vast number of people that the father has drawn to himself. If he is talking about him being the father of all fatherhood, the point then, of course, is this, that we should avoid the mistake of trying to understand the fatherhood of God by arguing from the fatherhood we're familiar with down here on earth. I sometimes have people come to me and say, don't talk to me about God the Father. Talk to me about Jesus. Talk to me about the Holy Spirit. Don't talk to me about God the Father. And the reason, of course, is they had a bad experience with their earthly father. 
So they think of the bad experience of the earthly father. He was, he was a hard man. He was a cruel man. He was an angry man. He was bitter. And they think of all the, this has been fatherhood, and they balloon it up to divine dimensions, and they get a picture of an ogre of a god. That's exactly the wrong way around. In actual fact, every fatherhood on earth is supposed to be modeled on the fatherhood of the father in heaven. Either way, whichever way we're to understand what Paul said here, the idea is we come to a vast, loving, glorious, triumphant father who has this great family, and like a child coming to the father, we come beseeching him to grant what we need. This is the basis of his praying. But then notice another thing. He prays with great boldness here. For he asked that the Father would grant his request out of his glorious riches. In other words, he's saying, Father, I know you're loaded. And because I know you're loaded, Father, I can come to you and I can ask great big things. One of Jill's and my favorite missionaries was C.T. Studd. And among other things, he used to write dreadful poetry. And one of the little poems he wrote, which sticks in my mind, is, When you come before the king... Large petitions with you bring, for his promises are such that you cannot ask too much. Well, Shakespeare, it ain't. But there's great truth there. When you come before the king, large petitions with you bring, for his promises are such that you cannot ask too much. We ask that the Father of the whole family in heaven and earth would grant out of his gloriously rich resources our request. On the basis of what he has revealed, on the basis of our intimate knowledge of him, with great boldness and deep intensity, Paul begins to pray. There's a great model for us in terms of our praying. But notice, secondly, the burden of Paul's prayer for spiritual growth. We've identified the basis of it. Now, what is the burden of it? What is it that he's really praying about? Well, in actual fact, what he is praying for is a tremendous sense of spiritual growth in the lives of these believers. Now, the reason that he's praying for spiritual growth is not that they are really messing up, that they're a bunch of hoodlums, that they are really not doing very well as Christians. In actual fact, he says in the first chapter that he's heard about their faith in the Lord Jesus and their love for all the saints. So they were a class act, this group of believers in Ephesus. Why then is he praying for spiritual growth? And the answer is because it doesn't matter how far along the road we are, there's still room for growth. There's still room for growth. And we'll see why when Paul begins to map out what it is that God has in mind for us in terms of spiritual development. Notice four things that are involved in spiritual growth. Verse 16. I pray that out of his glorious riches... He may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Have you got that? I pray that out of his glorious riches he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. The first thing is that they need to recognize the power of God at work in their lives if spiritual growth is going to take place. Now notice how he talks about this power. He wants them to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. 
Now it sounds as if Paul is praying that they might have a new visitation of the Holy Spirit. Or for the first time they might receive the Holy Spirit. But you will notice that in the early part of Ephesians, he's already said this about the Ephesian Christians. You were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Having believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit. And then in chapter 2, he talks about them being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his Spirit. So the Apostle Paul is not praying that they might receive the Holy Spirit, for in another place he has said quite categorically, if you don't have the Spirit, you're not a Christian. The thing that determines whether a person is a genuine Christian is that the Spirit of the living God has come into their lives so that we know God as Father and Creator, we know Jesus as Savior and Redeemer, and we know the Spirit of God as the indwelling dynamic of our new life. Now, if Paul is not praying that they might receive the Spirit, what is he praying? He is praying that they might begin to recognize the power that is latent within them because the spirit of him that raised up Christ from the dead has taken up residence in their lives. But there's another side to this. He is not only praying that they might be strengthened with power through the spirit. He is praying that this would happen as Christ dwells in their heart by faith. Now in the same way that a Christian is a person who has received the Holy Spirit... A Christian is a person in whom Jesus Christ lives. One of the evangelical cliches that people will use when they give their testimony is that they will say, I accepted Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. That's a great statement to make, as long as it's made in the context, but the wonder is that God accepted me. Another cliche we use is, I asked Jesus to come into my heart. That's the terminology that many of our young people use. And it is an appropriate way of expressing their experience of Christ. But if we receive the Holy Spirit, and if Christ comes to live in our heart, isn't there some confusion here? The answer is no. We should think in a Trinitarian fashion. In fact, the Bible says that God would come to dwell in us. God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit residing in us in the person of the Holy Spirit, crediting to us the life of God in the person of the living Christ. The point, of course, is this. All this happens when we come to repentance and faith, and God, in the person of his Son, through the instrumentality of the Holy Spirit, takes up residence in our hearts. Now, that's either the most incredible good news or the most palpable nonsense. And I suppose we need to figure out what we believe in this regard. Do we honestly, genuinely believe that having heard the gospel and responded to it and committed ourselves to Christ and asked him to become our Savior and Lord, that we have been sealed with the Holy Spirit? And that God, by his Spirit, has taken up residence in our lives. If we believe that, we will have the key to understanding the power that is available to Christians. It is not a power that is outside, it is a power that indwells. It is nothing less than the power of the risen Christ in the person of the Holy Spirit resident within the believer. You say, well, 
sure doesn't feel like it where I'm living. I mean, if there's all this power available to a Christian, I'm a Christian, I've received Christ, then, then how come I'm like I am? Well, notice specifically what Paul says. He says that he wants Christ to dwell in your heart through faith. In other words, it is possible to have Christ by his Spirit living in you, but not dwelling in you. And Paul makes a specific point here in the language that he uses. What does that mean? Well, you know that it's possible to live in a certain place and you move in and you say, I can't wait to get out of here. I remember when I was transferred to Manchester as a young banker and I got some lodgings with an old lady in her house. It was the only place I could find to stay. It was dreadful. It was awful. She used to cook a meal for me that was practically inedible and I could just about eat anything. The bedroom that I had had a rickety old bed in it and the mattress was like corrugated iron. The windows had drapes over them, but the drapes didn't fit and there were great big holes in them. And I couldn't sleep because the bed was so lumpy, but it didn't matter because the light was shining through the holes in the drapes on the ceiling and making pretty patterns. And I just used to amuse myself looking there. I couldn't wait to get out of there. Fortunately, Jill showed up and we got married. But you get the difference. You get the difference between living in a place and, and dwelling in a place, settling down and feeling at home there. And that's the word that Paul uses here. And therein lies the problem. Sometimes we treat Christ as the one who's come into our lives, but we keep him on the porch. We keep him on the porch. And what he says is, give me the keys. Just let me move in and take over. And let me be the indwelling Lord. Let me be your indwelling power. Let me be all that you need. You say, well, how does it work? And Paul says specifically, by faith. That Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith. In other words, the same kind of faith that you used to invite him into your life in the first place is the kind of faith that you exercise on a daily basis where you trust him, where you depend on him, where you expect him to be who he says he is, you expect him to do what he says he'll do, you expect him to presence himself in all his power within you, and you live in conscious dependence and obedience to him every step of the way. And what do you discover? Not new power, you begin to release the power that is already there. Spiritual growth is dependent on power. But then read on. The Apostle Paul then goes on to say, in verse 17, And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power with all the saints to grasp, etc., etc. The second key thing he prays for is love. But he is not just talking of love in a vague sense. What he's saying is this. I'm praying with great intensity that you'll not only begin to understand the power within you through the indwelling Christ, but I am praying that you will understand that you are rooted and built upon love. He uses two picture words here. One from agriculture, rooted, and one from architecture, built upon. What he's saying is this. As far as your spiritual experience is concerned, the soil into which your roots go is the love of God. Or to use another analogy, as far as your spiritual experience is concerned, the foundation on which the whole edifice is built is the love of God. 
And you've got to be constantly reminded of this so that you'll be rooted firmly in his love and built securely upon his love. Now, how important is this? Well, sometimes we get the impression that our spiritual experience is built upon what we've done. Our spiritual experience is built on what we didn't do. Our spiritual experience is built on us being superior to those other folks out there. And God says, no, no. Your spiritual experience is built exclusively on my love for you. If it were not for my love for you, my grace for you, my mercy towards you, there would be no spiritual experience. If it were not for my initiative of love in drawing you to myself, there wouldn't be any spiritual experience. And so you've got to understand the foundation of it all and the soil of it all is God's love for you. And you go around having this tremendous sense that of one thing you can be sure in an uncertain world. And what is that? The love of God is your foundation and it is the soil in which your roots go down deep. Now, when you come across people who are beginning to discover more of the power available to them and more of the love that is the basis of their experience, they will begin to grow spiritually. But then notice the third thing he talks about. He prays that they may not only be rooted and established in love, but they may, in verse 18, have power together with all the saints to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love which surpasses knowledge. How can you know something that surpasses knowledge? I think that's a good question. How can you know something that surpasses knowledge? I think what Paul is saying here is this, that there are certain things that we know on the basis of intellectually accumulating data, all kinds of information. But then there's a sense in which we can know things experimentally and practically. Many years ago, when we still lived in England, I was invited in the dead of an English winter to fly out to Jamaica for a week's meetings. I was absolutely ecstatic. Anything is better than the middle of an English winter. And so I arrived in Jamaica and uh, had a great week there. Towards the end of the week, somebody said to me, how much of our beautiful island have you seen? And I said, I've seen the inside of the house where I live, the inside of the cars that they've taken me to the church, and the inside of the churches that I've been preaching in. That's all. And they said, well, that's awful. So they got me half a day off. They got me up very early in the morning. They drove me at a frantic pace right across Jamaica up to beautiful Discovery Bay and Runaway Bay. Incidentally, there are two bays next to each other. The first guys came in on Discovery Bay and they got run out on Runaway Bay right next door. But that's a bit of Jamaican history. What they told me when I got to Runaway and Discovery Bay was this. They said the water temperature in the middle of winter in Jamaica is higher than the outside temperature in the middle of summer in England. Are you with me? The water temperature in the middle of winter in Jamaica is higher than the outside temperature in the middle of summer in England. And I took all this data into my head and it just surpassed knowledge. It was just unbelievable that that was true. But that's what they told me. And then they said, here's a mango. Put your swimsuit on. 
wade out up to your neck in the Caribbean and eat your first mango, for the only place to eat a mango is up to your neck in the Caribbean. And so I did it. And now I knew that which surpasses knowledge. In other words, they give me the data, but now I experienced it. And they dragged me kicking and screaming out of the water <laughs> and back to preach. You get the picture? Now, says the Apostle Paul, I want you not just to have an academic understanding of the length and the breadth and the depth and the height of the love of God, but I want you to know it experimentally and experientially. Well, how wide is the love of God? It is wide enough to embrace a lost world. And how long is it? It is long enough to endure rejection and abuse. And how high is the love of God? It is high enough to lift a forgiven sinner to the presence of a holy God. And how deep is it? It's deep enough to offer itself as a sacrifice to redeem a cruel, lost, sinful world. But that's all academic. Do you sense deep down within you what it is to know that you're loved like that? To know that you're loved like that. My daughter... Judy, the apple of my eye, called me and said, Dad, I've got to give a talk. I'm in a bit of a muddle. Can you help me with it? I said, sure, I'd be glad to. I was flying through Chicago, so I got an early flight down to O'Hare. She met me at O'Hare. We went into the Red Carpet Club, and for two hours, my daughter and I just sat together, and we worked on a talk, and it was great. And uh, I sent her an email after, well, she sent me an email and thanked me for helping her with it. I sent her an email back and said, you know, I just realized I spend my life talking to people and helping them put talks together. And that's the first time I did it with my own daughter. And I'm sorry that I never did it with you before. And then I thought to myself, hmm. And I put this in the email. I guess I'm getting old and soft and mushy, but I'll get over it quickly. She sent me an email back the next day, and she said, I like you, old and soft and mushy. I love you, Dad. Made my day. What a wonderful thing it is to be loved. What a wonderful thing it is to know that there are people who care just as you are. My wife loves me. My kids love me. My grandchildren love me when I give them what they want. Oh, says the Apostle Paul, that you might know that which surpasses knowledge, that you might know experientially and experimentally in your own heart the length and breadth and the depth and the height of the love of God focusing on you. So that you might come forthly to the, all the fullness of God. In other words, that you might begin progressively to discover all that goes to make God God and all his communicable attributes become yours in reality. Now, do you see why Paul's praying for them? You see, there's so much growing to do if we're going to be the church of Christ, which is the focal point of the grand cosmic plan. There's a belief behind all this that Paul has that allows him to dare to pray like this. Read with me Ephesians 3.20. Now to him 
who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. We call this a doxology. It's a statement of praise and glorifying God. But look at it in the context of what he is saying here. Now unto him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to the power that is at work within us. What would be the point in Paul praying all this glorious stuff if God was not in a position to do something about it? But is he? Well, let's break this down. Let's put it in bite-sized pieces. Don't shout out the answer to this, but be excruciatingly honest with yourself, just quietly in your own heart. Here's the first question. Do you honestly, genuinely believe with all your heart that God is able to do all you ask? Let's put it up a notch. Do you believe that God is able to do all you imagine? (laughs) You see, you imagine a lot of stuff you wouldn't dare ask. Let's put it up a notch. Do you believe with all your heart that God is able to do above all you ask? Let's put it up another notch. Do you believe he's able to do above all you imagine? Put it up another notch. Do you believe that God is able to do immeasurably more than you ask? Now let's put it in the top notch. Do you believe that God is able to do immeasurably above all you ask or imagine. Now, here's the $64,000 question. Do you believe that God is able to do immeasurably above all you ask or imagine according to the power already at work within you? That's what he says. This is mind-blowing. This is heartwarming. This is big league stuff, folks. And this is the kind of spiritual growth kind of spiritual growth that Paul wants to see in these believers, the church, the church of Christ, the focal point of God's grand and cosmic plan. Our problem so often is that we settle for so little. Instead of having an insatiable desire to grow and progress in our individual and corporate experiences. Now, says the Apostle Paul, It is to the one who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine that the glory is due. It's due to him in all that Christ has done, but it is due to him in all that the church is today. Why? Because the church is becoming increasingly mature individually and increasingly mature corporately. And more and more we're in the position where Christ in all his mighty power and love and mercy and grace is working out his eternal purposes in us and through us. I tell you, folks, I think Ephesians is one of the most exciting pieces of literature anywhere on the face of God's green earth. We need to ask ourselves, how much do we believe? And how much do we respond to it? Well, we have a chance to respond right now. Let's just quietly bow in prayer for a moment. We bow quietly in your presence. Our gracious Father, the Father from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is derived.
We come boldly into your presence because we know of your glorious riches of grace. And we humbly ask that we might know what it is to be living in the good of the indwelling presence of the living Christ, that he is operative in the hearts of individual believers and in the corporate life of the church. Pray, dear Lord, that we might have this underlying sense of this rootedness, the security, the stability that comes from knowing that we're loved to distraction by you. We pray, Lord, that we might experimentally begin to live in the good of a love whose dimensions are so vast. We pray that we might increasingly discover in our own lives more and more of the attributes, character and nature, the fullness of God himself. We dare pray this, Lord, because we believe that you are able, using the power already operative within us, to do immeasurably more than all we've just asked. You're able to do immeasurably more than anything we dare imagine. But we want to make sure that we're living in accordance with your purposes, that we're praying in accordance with your will. We come humbly, earnestly, intensely before you and ask, Lord, that we might settle for nothing less than your best and forgive us for all the times that's exactly what we've done. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.